Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to continue our discussion on different neurology complications that we can see in patients that we take care of, anywhere from seizures, strokes, spinal cord injuries, congenital anomalies that we might see with the neurology side of things, and then we'll wrap up a little bit with talking about quad equinus syndrome as well. And that's kind of our outline that we want to go through today. So Tanner, do you just want to start us off? I know there's going to be a lot of information, but let's just start with seizures and, and walk through basically what those are and then how that's going to alter our plan taking care of patients that either have seizures prior to coming to surgery or even during the surgical perioperative experience. I think the first thing we should do is just define what seizures are, and then we'll go into basically how we're going to manage them. Or even if somebody is currently on medication to manage the seizures, how is that going to affect us in the operating room and how we manage their anesthetics? So a seizure is just going to be defined as a burst in electrical activity of a group of neurons in the brain, and that can be subdivided in several different ways. So you can look at a simple seizure where you have no loss in consciousness or a complex seizure is going to be a seizure that has altered level of consciousness with the patient. You can then categorize them based on the amount of neurons or the part of the brain that is being affected. So partial seizures, you're going to have a specific local section of neurons in the brain that is going to be the focal point that is causing the seizures. Generalized, as you can guess, is going to be both cerebral hemispheres are going to be affected when causing this type of seizure. If someone has a disorder of the brain where there are recurring and unprovoked seizures, this is what we term this as epilepsy. And patients with epilepsy are going to be treated with various different antileptic drugs to try to decrease the neuronal excitability and also to enhance their neuronal inhibition and hopefully decrease the amount of seizures that these patients will be having. It's important that we pause here and just talk quickly about some of these medications that they would be on because this can have implications for our anesthetic. Sometimes they'll be on drugs such as carbamenzapine, phenytoin, and even barbiturates can cause some enzyme induction. All three of these can actually. And so you have to be mindful if you are giving an anesthetic to these patients. Sometimes you need to increase the amount of dosage that you're using simply because their enzyme activity is so increased that you're going to be seeing those drugs cleared much faster and they're going to have a much higher tolerance to the anesthetic drugs that we're giving. Specifically, phenytoin can cause hypotension. It can also cause some cardiac arrhythmias. Also important to keep in mind. It's also associated with Steven Johnson syndrome. And so the last thing I wanted to mention here is that when you're giving IV, you need to make sure that you have a really good patent IV because it can cause extreme vasoconstriction if that IV would go bad while you're giving that medication. Valproy is another antileptic drug that we typically see. I feel like this is a very uh, common one that you're going to see on the med list when you have somebody that has a seizure disorder. It's important to remember that that can eventually cause some hepatic failure and pancreatitis. And if you see somebody that has been on this medication for a long time, you can see increased surgical bleeding because you're going to have uh, typically a thrombocytopenia picture. And then it also decreased the von Willebrand factor and factor eight. And so if there's a 
uh, a patient that has been on this for a prolonged period of time, make sure that you're looking at your labs before surgery and just keeping in mind that increased bleeding might be a side effect that you see there uh, intraoperatively. So for patients that suffer with reoccurring seizure disorders and they want to take a more surgical treatment route for this, it's more reserved for patients that don't respond well to the antiepileptic medications that Tanner talked about to start with. And once we've gotten to this point, we're ready to do surgical treatment. Depending on where the seizure is at, if it's a local seizure, if it's a generalized seizure activity, it'll depend on what the treatment options will be. So partial seizures, they're going to respond well to resectioning of a tumor or a harmatoma in the affected region of the brain that's causing the seizure to happen. Um, in rare cases, a hemispherectomy is needed to treat persistent catastrophic seizures. And actually recently, more laser thermal ablations have been used uh, to resect the local seizures as well. Um, I have also seen there is left vagal nerve stimulators that can be used to reduce the seizure frequency. So just know there's there's several different options that, that we can do as a surgical treatment route. Now, if you hear of patients that have status epilepticus, basically what this is, is a continuous seizure activity, or when you have two or more seizures that occur without a regain of consciousness in between the seizures. If a patient goes into this, emergent treatment is going to be needed with, first of all, pharmacological suppression of the seizure, and then treatment of the cause. So let's say the cause is hypoglycemia that it, that is causing this, then you're going to obviously treat the hypoglycemia. But again, we'll use some of the medications that Tanner has already talked about from a pharmacological standpoint to treat this, and this needs to be done emergently. If this is happening, then tracheal intubation may be needed. And so we're going to be using, if we get called to come to the bedside to intubate, you're going to be using short acting or no muscle relaxant in order for them to assess muscle movement moving forward. So Versed and propofol will, will temporarily stop the seizure activity during intubation. So this is great um, when you intubate by giving Versed and propofol. Now, anesthesia considerations, let's say just for seizure disorder in general, what are some things that we're going to be concerned about? So we should consider any of the anti-epileptic drugs the patient is on and how that's going to affect other drugs. Tanner already talked about how some of these classes of medications that they would be taking will induce metabolic enzymes. And so we need to be aware that some of our anesthesia drugs and pharmacological medications are going to be metabolized quicker, and we're going to be needing to give more subsequent doses of them. So rocuronium may be a good example of that. You might need to be uh, redosing rocuronium or non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers sooner than what you would have if, if they're not on these medications. Additionally, ladonosine, which is a metabolite of atricurium and cisatricurium, can increase the risk of seizure activity. So just know that if you're going to be giving a patient atricurium or cisatricurium, when it's broken down, it turns into ladonosine, which then increases the seizure risk. So you want to be really uh, cautious of giving these medications in, in patients that, that suffer from seizure disorders. If you're going to be doing cases with these patients uh, in which intraoperative electric corticography is going to be used, then they're going to be using that to monitor the epileptic activity. And so many of our anesthesia drugs are going to suppress this activity. And this makes it very difficult for the monitoring tech to, to monitor this. 
So we kind of need to be aware of what drugs do or do not affect that. Some some of the drugs that do not affect epileptic activity are going to be Presidex, opioids, nitrous oxide, just to name a few. But again, talk with whoever the monitoring technician is about what they're comfortable with you giving and whatnot. And then lastly, with this uh, section, patients, if they have a seizure under general anesthesia, and if they have muscle relaxation already on board, it's going to be hard to figure out if they're having a seizure. And so we need to look for other signs and symptoms. So some of the signs and symptoms that we would see if they're under general anesthesia, they're relaxed, they're going to have this unexplained quick change in heart rate, blood pressure will increase, their increase in tidal CO2 will, will dramatically go up due to the increase in metabolic activity from the seizure. And patients undergoing these suspected seizures, if you realize this under anesthesia, this is the diagnosis, and they should receive benzodiazepines. You can give another round of Versed, give a bolus of propofol, or even a barbiturate. And again, these will be medications that should limit or block that seizure activity from continuing. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Nurse Anesthesia of Maine, where excellence meets compassion. Established in 2003, Nurse Anesthesia of Maine has grown into a dynamic team of 30-plus CRNAs, serving 12 hospitals and ASCs with exceptional anesthesia services. Nurse Anesthesia of Maine is seeking qualified nurse anesthesiologists to join their outstanding team with competitive salaries, a robust benefit package, flexible schedules, and a commitment to community involvement. Explore Bangor, Maine, a vibrant city surrounded by stunning outdoor landscapes with all the city conveniences yet within range of both mountain hikes and a beautiful Atlantic coast. It's perfect for work and family life. Elevate your career with Nurse Anesthesia of Maine. Visit www.namecrna.com for more information. That's www.namecrna.com. All right, moving along, the next thing we want to talk about is a patient that would present with a stroke. So a stroke is when you don't have enough blood flow that is going to certain areas of the brain. And then eventually that's going to lead to brain tissue ischemia. And that can lead to the cells actually dying there that are not getting the blood flow. So as a result of that process, what are the things that we're going to see? We're going to see confusion, trouble speaking, uh, you can see loss of balance. You can see drooping on one side of the face. I feel like that's, you know, like a very, very hallmark sign when you start to see that face droop and that slurred speech. Trouble seeing would also be a consideration here. And the things that are going to place these patients more at risk for developing a stroke is a patient that has hypertension, if they have a smoking history, excessive alcohol intake, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, those are all going to be things that are going to increase the risk factors uh, there for developing a stroke. Now, when we're talking about a stroke, we need to think of it from two different standpoints. So either it's going to be hemorrhagic where you have a bleed, or it's going to be from an occlusion, which is blocking the flow of blood to that specific area of the brain. And so we'll get into this a little bit more. The treatment is going to be vastly different, whether it's a occlusive stroke or if it's a hemorrhagic stroke. And so that's going to be very important for us to figure out very quickly as we try to manage these patients. 
real quickly, I just want to touch on a transient ischemic attack, a TIA, is when you have a sudden vascular-related neurologic deficit that typically resolves in around 24 hours. So many times you're looking at patient history and you say, oh, did you know, I see on here that you had a history of a stroke. And they said, well, uh, maybe it wasn't a real stroke. They said that I had something and it just went away. Typically what the patient's talking about here is when they had a TIA. And this again is something that resolves on its own within that 24 hours. It is important to realize that approximately 33% of patients who have a TIA will go on to have a stroke. So it is a pretty strong predictor of someone who is going to have a stroke down the line. But again, different here where this is going to be resolving on its own, whereas what we're talking about, the uh, a stroke that's occlusive or hemorrhagic, this is going to be something that we're going to have to treat. So once a stroke is suspected, we've heard it time and time again, but time is tissue. And so you're going to want to be moving very quickly through the cadence of how we're going to treat these these patients. And so the faster, you know, the blood flow is restored, the better likelihood of recovery and the, the better likelihood that these patients won't have long-term deficits from the stroke. The initial thing that you'll want to look at is a non-contrast CT to determine, again, if there is bleeding, and that's going to help us identify, again, is this ischemic or is this hemorrhagic? One thing I want to mention here, although a CT scan is very sensitive for detecting if there is a bleed, angiography is going to be more sensitive to finding the vascular occlusions. But again, initial steps is going to be a non-contrast CT to try to determine which path we're going to go to manage these patients with a stroke. So as Tanner said, there, there's two main categories of strokes here, ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic strokes. Let's first talk about ischemic strokes. So typically when these patients come in, tissue plasminogen activator or TPA should be started as soon as possible unless they have any contraindications to receiving that. Patients will go back to angio and the goal is to break apart that clot and restore the blood flow to the brain. And again, we know that the patient has an ischemic stroke because when they first come in, we get that CT scan, we're able to figure out if there's any intracranial bleeding or not. So if, if we rule that out, we believe this is an ischemic stroke episode, we will start that TPA as soon as possible, as long as it's not contraindicated, and get them back to angio as soon as possible to restore that blood flow to the brain. And that's where anesthesia comes into play here. They come back to angio. We're going to be performing anesthesia on these patients while they try to restore blood flow to the brain. And so basically, you're going to be doing a rushed and efficient preoperative valuation because this is a more of an urgent case. Um, but we want to make sure we're efficiently doing a preoperative evaluation, but we don't want to delay the case from starting. If the patient is unable to lay flat, if they have a full stomach, any respiratory complications, then a general anesthetic is going to be preferred than just doing a, a sedation or a MAC anesthetic. Uh, however, some studies are starting to show that if a patient is able to remain still while lying flat, there is an advantage of just doing sedation compared to a general anesthetic in the fact that you're going to be having the ability to assess their neurological status throughout the case. So ideally for these cases, invasive blood pressure monitoring is going to be preferred than just simply taking a cuff pressure. However, again, the procedure should not be delayed simply for us to obtain arterial access. Um, but if we do have that time or if they do come up 
from the emergency department, the arterial access, whatever the case may be, we obviously would prefer that because the goal here is to maintain the systolic blood pressure between 140 and 180 millimeters of mercury or to the surgeon's preference. And this is something where we need to be having good communication with the surgeon to figure out where he or she wants that blood pressure to be. But typically that's the goal, 140 to 180. Now, once the blood flow has been restored, we'll decrease that systolic blood pressure back down to 120 to 140 to limit the risk of any hemorrhagic outcome from happening. The last thing we want at this point now is for them to start bleeding in the brain and causing a hemorrhagic stroke. Heparin is going to be given during these cases to maintain uh, activated clotting time or ACT between 250 and 300 seconds. We don't often reverse these patients with protamine at the end of the procedure, uh, just so you know. Uh, I have had a couple experiences where the, the surgeon did want me to get protamine, but for the most part, we don't typically get protamine for these cases. If an intracranial hemorrhage develops during the procedure due to, let's say, the surgeon has a arterial perforation while they're working or, or something like that occurs in the brain during the procedure, the patient may have an acute decrease in their level of consciousness. And again, this is more so, if it's, it's hard to tell for under anesthesia at this point. Um, if they're doing a, a sedation case and we're trying to keep them somewhat alert, then we'll see a, a drastic drop in the level of consciousness. This is why some people prefer to do a sedation case rather than a general anesthetic for this. If this does happen, then our goal is to keep the systolic blood pressure below 140 to minimize any bleeding, uh, but also we don't want to excessively lower the BP, which will then limit any cerebral perfusion that we could have. At this point, good communication with the surgeon is, is imperative uh, regarding do we, re do we reverse the heparin that we gave? Do we get protamine here? Do we reverse the, the TPA that we gave with platelets, FFP, cryo? Uh, whatever the case may be, good communication is, is imperative and, and urgency is imperative in this case. Now, strokes that occur in the perioperative environment so let's say during during a procedure you get done, this is not a related stroke case. The patient did not come in with a stroke, but they they end up having a stroke under anesthesia. Often these are going to be the ischemic version, not the hemorrhagic version. And so ischemic strokes during the preoperative environment have an increased risk with cardiac, neurologic, and major vascular surgeries. And again, it's really difficult to determine if they're having a stroke immediately because they're going to have some residual effects of the anesthetic in, in the recovery room. And so it's hard to determine if it's just simply they're waking up still or if there really is a stroke that has happened. Um, but once we have assessed that there is a potential for a stroke, once they're starting to wake up in recovery, then the intervention plan is going to be the same as if they just came in as an outpatient coming into the hospital. So then I'm going to back up and talk about hemorrhagic strokes briefly now. Hemorrhagic strokes are four times more likely to cause death than ischemic strokes. So this is, again, while this, this is very, very imperative that we, we are taking care of this as soon as possible, we want to make sure that we're re restoring blood flow to the different tissues in the brain. So the site of the bleeding, based on where that's at, will classify the type of, of hemorrhage that we have, whether it's an epidural hematoma, a subdural hematoma, subarachnoid hemorrhage or an interperichmal hemorrhage as well. Those, those are the four main categories that we, we see. So surgical decompression of the hematoma is going to be necessary here and urgent to decrease the pressure on the brain. So if you can think about it, internally in the skull, in the brain, we're starting to bleed. And that blood is filling up in a, basically a closed space. And the more blood that we fill up in the brain, the more pressure it's going to put on any of the blood vessels coming into the brain and decrease blood flow coming in. And this will basically increase our intracranial pressure. And this will happen 
over time, more and more significance. And so we need to to surgically decompress this hematoma to decrease intracranial pressure and then restore blood flow uh, coming back into the brain. So blood pressure management, again, this is kind of similar to what I talked about during an episode of the ischemic stroke if they were to start bleeding. Uh, but blood pressure management should be to keep the systolic blood pressure below 140 unless the patient has an initial systolic blood pressure of over 220. If this is the case, then the, the systolic blood pressure should be brought down to between 140 and 160. But again, so there's a little bit difference here, obviously, on how we treat this. Uh, but for the most part, when they come in, the main goal is to figure out if they're having a stroke, are they hemorrhagic, are they ischemic, and that will determine the plan moving forward. But again, urgency and efficiency is, is very important with these patients just to make sure that we're giving them as, as much chance of recovery as possible. Next thing we want to talk about is patients that would come in with acute spinal cord injury. Typically, we see this from some sort of traumatic event. And of all the different levels, typically we see C1 through C3 being the most commonly injured. And we want to first talk about here before we get into how we're going to manage these patients is what does this look like? So when they initially present, you're going to typically see spinal shock. Spinal shock is going to be referring to flaccid muscular tone and no sensation below the level of the injury. You can also see some cardiovascular complications. This is more common with a patient that would have a cervical spine injury compared to a thoracic injury. If it occurs above T1, patients are going to have bradycardia because they don't have the cardiac accelerator innervation that comes from T1 through T4. Additionally, you can also see some low blood pressure. You can see some hypotension because of the vasodilation that occurs from the loss of sympathetic nervous system activity. Cervical spine injuries are going to, again, have a, a more significant effect here with this hypotension than you would see in thoracic injuries. When we're thinking about how we're going to manage these patients, it should be going through your mind, okay, if you have, we already talked about the spinal shock and the, and the loss of muscular tone. So as we're thinking about that, you should be thinking, okay, well, depending on what level this is occurring at, how is this going to affect our respiratory system? If you have uh, cervical and even upper thoracic spine injuries, then the respiratory musculature can be impaired. And so you can have a patient that is hypoventilating or uh, unable to clear secretions. And so in those cases, you're going to need to secure an airway very quickly. It's also something to think about when you have these patients coming in and we're talking about, you know, uh, a high injury here, cervical or high thoracic. These patients are going to be in a C collar and it's important to think about, okay, if I am having a patient that is hypoventilating, I need to gain an airway. How am I going to do this safely for the patient without causing, you know, more injury to the patient? So we want to keep that C-collar on until the CT scan or MRI can be performed to rule out the cervical spine injury. So if we have not done that yet, we need to gain an airway. How are we going to intubate these patients with a cervical collar? You can do DL. If you're going to DL, then you need to have an assistant that is going to remove that collar and then it's going to place their hands on either side of the head and then press downward to make sure the head stays in place. But it's important that we limit any kind of neck extension or flexion. A better choice is going to be using a video scope or doing an awake fiber optic. The thing that you should think about, though, with an awake fiber optic is that you don't want the patient coughing. 
this is going to be, you know, causing more movement there in, in the head and neck. And so if you're going to be doing an awake fiber optic, we need to think about, okay, what is the patient presenting like? Are they, you know, still having reflexes and are we able to sedate them? If so, in an appropriate manner where we're not having them bucking and coughing while we're trying to do the awake fiber optic, or do we need to do a video laryngoscope where we're able to keep their head and neck very, very stationary, still, you know, go around the curvature of the soft palate and, and get a good view there to gain an airway. When we're actually talking about these patients intraoperatively, some of the things that you want to think about is what are they going to look like hemodynamically? We already mentioned that sometimes you can see, you know, bradycardia depending on the level of the injury. Again, if that's going to be above T1, then that's going to be uh, above those cardiac accelerator innervation. While we're doing anesthesia, you can also see hypotension because of the decreased sympathetic nervous system signaling that is happening as well. And so because of that, you can see hypotension from even the positive pressure uh, from the ventilation that we're giving. You can see that from position changing, blood loss. If you have you know, our volatile anesthetics on board, those are also going to, in a, in a typical case, cause hypotension. But especially here when we have decreased firing from the sympathetic nervous system, you can see profound hypotension there as well. You want to limit the use of nitrous oxide because of the potential trauma here. You don't know if there's risk there for potential air trapping in closed spaces. And so you want to avoid nitrous oxide. In terms of intubating the patient, let's talk about succinylcholine. So this is, you know, a very common drug that we would use in trauma. It's very fast acting. And so this might be something that you would want to use to gain an airway. After the first 24 hours, we don't want to use succinylcholine because we have a lack of innervation there and signal that is being sent down to the neuromuscular junction. Because of that, you're going to have an increase in extrajunctional nicotinic receptors that are developed. And if we are giving succinylcholine with these extrajunctional nicotinic receptors, then you're going to have a massive release of potassium and uh, you're going to have all the effects that would happen there with uh, a drastic increase in potassium. So after the first 24 hours, you're not going to want to use succinylcholine initially if it's coming in as the trauma and you are within the first 24 hours, still okay to use sucks to, to go to sleep and get the patient relaxed for intubation. All in all, the things that we need to really be thinking about are, okay, when they come in, we need to try to assess and figure out if best we can initially, what's the level of injury that is occurring that's going to help us identify what kind of hemodynamic changes we potentially may see or we already are seeing and in why those would be happening. You know, you could have a trauma and you could be thinking, okay, this patient is hypotensive. That could be from, you know, massive bleeding, or it could simply be because of the level of the injury and the, uh, you know, massive vasodilation that's, that, that's happening. And so it's important that we have an understanding of where's the injury, how are we going to manage the hemodynamics? Are we going to need to gain an airway? Are they hypoventilating? Are they having trouble clearing their airway? If we're going to do that, how are we going to do that safely without causing increased injury? And then if we go to surgery, you know, what are the things that we can be prepared for as far as looking out for that hypotension or the bradycardia that's associated with these injuries? So now in patients that have chronic spinal cord injuries, 
During anesthesia for these patients, neuromuscular blocking agents should still be used to limit skeletal muscle spasms that can occur. So even though they are not going to have any motor movement anywhere below the level of that injury, just know that they can have involuntarily skeletal muscle spasms. And again, as Tanner mentioned, after the 24-hour mark, we don't use succinylcholine due to the exaggerated hyperkalemia that can result. So in these chronic spinal cord injury patients, we, we should not be using succinylcholine for them. So depending on the level of where that spinal cord injury occurs, if there's any respiratory musculature that's going to be involved, so if you have a anywhere up in the cervical or upper thoracic area that you have an injury at, just know that any of that respiratory musculature that's going to be diminished or weakened, there's going to be an increased risk for post-operative hypoventilation, a decreased ability to clear your secretions. So we just need to be mindful of that. And these patients are also on baclofen which is used to limit that involuntary skeletal muscle spasms that I talked about. And baclofen should be continued throughout the perioperative experience because it can cause withdrawal symptoms if you were to stop it. And one of these withdrawal symptoms can uh, be seizures. So we, we want to make sure they continue that medication all the way through. These patients are also obviously at an increased risk for thrombosis. They're not going to be moving their lower extremities. Uh, due to immobility. And because of this, we need to make sure we're doing all the prophylactic uh, measures to decrease risk uh, of any deep venous thrombosis that can occur. And then one of the main things that we think of with spinal cord injuries from a chronic standpoint is preventing autonomic hyperreflexia. So what is this? What is autonomic hyperreflexia? So as the spinal cord reflexes return after a few weeks from the main injury, Patients that are stimulated below the level of the injury will cause afferent impulses to enter the spinal cord. And the reflexes, so again, these are spinal cord reflexes. These are not being sent from from further signals up by the brain. This is just simply from the spinal cord. There's going to be reflexes that will cause a sympathetic response to go back out of the spinal cord via the splanic outflow track. Now, in patients with no injury, so if this were to happen to somebody that does not have a spinal cord injury, when the spinal cord reflexes get sent back out to that splenic outflow track, there are then inhibitory tracks from further up on the spinal cord or up in the, the central nervous system that will limit these reflexive spinal cord sympathetic signals going out. But in this case, in a spinal injured patient, these signals will continue to be sent back out. And again, this is reflex. This is this is not pain related or anything like that. This is just simply a stimulation below the level of the spinal cord injury. You have these afferent signals get sent up. You have these sympathetic responses as a reflex getting sent back out through the splenic outflow tract, and it causes this significant sympathetic response. And we're going to see significant vasoconstriction below the level of the spinal cord. And patients that have this then get really hypertensive pretty fast because they're constricting down in the vasculature below the level of that injury. And then as a result, they're going to have a reflex bradycardia because their heart now has an increased afterload it's fighting against. And that reflex bradycardia will occur. And above the level of the spinal cord, we start to see vasodilation, as you would expect. But you continue to have that constriction below the level of the spinal cord injury. So you basically split the body in half, if you will. You're not having vasodilation on the top half, vasoconstriction on the bottom half. The vasodilation will cause increased blood flow into the brain. It'll cause nasal congestion because there's more blood going through the, the nasal cavity. 
You're going to have uh, patients complaining of headache just from that increased blood flow in the brain, blurred vision. This hypertension that results can increase the procedural blood loss that we might see. It can increase the chance of seizures. And as I talked about, it's more work on the left side of the heart. And so we can even see acute left ventricular failure due to that increased afterload. So basically, we want to try to limit the risk of them having this autonomic hyperreflexia. And again, what causes this? It's just simply stimulation from anywhere below that, that spinal cord injury. And so roughly 85% of patients with an injury above the level of T6 are going to have autonomic hyperreflexia or some version of it to some degree. Rarely though, do we see this with an injury below the level of T10, but just know the farther up you get that spinal cord injury, the more likely the patient is to have this occur. And to minimize the risk of autonomic hyperreflexia, we treat these patients the same as if you would treat a patient with no spinal cord injury in the sense that we get them fully anesthetized prior to that stimulation. So you may think, oh, well, they're not they don't have any sensation at that part of, of their body because it's below the level of the spinal cord injury. Well, that's not necessarily the case because those reflexes will still be intact and send those signals out. Uh, so just because they they are going to have a decreased sensation below that injury, even it's been shown in laboring patients with spinal cord injuries, that epidurals have been shown to, to treat patients that have been showing the signs of autonomic hyperreflexia due to the uterine contractions uh, from the labor pain that causes this. And so don't just simply think that you don't need to do a neuroaxial anesthetic on these patients because it does help decrease the, the risk of this. And then if a patient under anesthesia does experience autonomic hyperreflexia, we need to have vasodilators on board, start with short acting such as Cleverprex uh, to, treat that, to treat that sudden uh, increase in blood pressure. And then if it continues and persists, you may need to start with some more longer acting medications like hydrolyzing. Next, let's talk about cauda equina syndrome. So when we're talking about the anatomy of the spinal cord, the spinal cord in adults will extend down to approximately L2 vertebrae. Sometimes you'll see it at L3 Cauda equina is going to be the sac of nerve roots that extend out of the bottom of the spinal cord and run down the rest of the lumbar and sacral vertebrae to the legs, bladder, bowel. This is, again, going to be going beyond that L2, L3, where we typically think the spinal cord ending. Cauda equina syndrome is where these nerve roots will lose functionality. This can happen from several different causes. You can see trauma there. You can see spinal cord ischemia if you have uh, a hematoma or something that's causing compression there. Infection, you can see neurotoxicity from local anesthetic injection would also be another thing that would cause those nerve roots to lose their functionality. Symptoms will look sensation-wise very similar to that of a saddle block. You're going to see urinary and bowel uh, dysfunction as well. And then you're going to see uh, bilateral sciatic pain and lower leg weakness when we're thinking about what the level that this is occurring at, this all should make sense as far as, you know, the innervation there being below that L2, L3 level there. Because the nerve roots here have the lack of that protective sheath, they're more likely to be injured when a high concentration of local anesthetics are directed right at these nerves, especially if you're using a microcatheter. So for this reason, spinal anesthesia has a risk for developing cauda equina syndrome if you're going to be using repeated injections. 
Additionally, when we think about the actual types of medications that we're using, hyperbaric local anesthetics are going to have a higher likelihood to cause a Cotta syndrome. So for example, like 5% lidocaine, if you're using that, then that's going to be hyperbaric and that could potentially have more risk here for the Cotta syndrome. The faster that Cotta syndrome is diagnosed, then it is, like we talked about with stroke, time is of the essence. It is important to understand here though, too, that many times this can resolve on its own. And we're talking about different things that can cause this. So you can think about if you have a a hematoma that's causing compression there, then that would need to be evaluated and looked at to see if this is something that's going to resolve. Look at patient's factors and understand do we have a really high likelihood of this being an increased bleed? Is this going to resolve? And are they having mild symptoms that could resolve or do we need to go in and evacuate that that hematoma? Or is this a, a... actual issue with a disc that is slipped or you have actual compression there that needs to be surgically fixed. That would be another issue where you would have that conversation. And again, time is of the essence as far as the faster that you can remove that impingement or remove that actual compression there, then you are going to be ideally saving the potential dysfunction here that could be long-term you could have that long-term sciatic pain. You could have the bladder and bowel dysfunction. So those are going to be things that you're going to want to try to act quickly to get to resolution. With Cotta syndrome, though, it is important that you are very clear. And again, this is going to be something that we're probably going to be having conversations with. But ultimately, we're talking about surgeons making these calls. This is something that you know you want to be sure that this is not going to resolve on its own and we're doing an unnecessary surgery. You also want to be mindful that you're not wanting to delay surgery because the risk there for permanent injury. And so there's a balancing act to determine, you know, what steps need to be taken to effectively manage this. In terms of what we can do as far as trying to avoid risk for this from things that we're doing, like we're doing spinals or epidurals, if we're doing a repeated spinal dose, then you're going to want to do those greater than 10 minutes apart if you have a failed spinal. You also want to avoid spinal microcatheters. We talked about how that can cause more of a risk there with those unprotected nerves. And then you're also going to want to avoid, if you can, the use of the hyperbaric local anesthetic solutions to try to minimize the risk there for cauda syndrome. In terms of actual anesthetic management, If you're going to, let's say this is because of a disc that is causing compression, we're going to treat this very similarly to uh, any other general anesthetic. It's going to be important that we have a very clear picture of their symptoms beforehand and that we have a very clear picture afterwards to see if there's any resolution or any improvement. And ultimately, it's going to be, you know, what are we able to do that's going to be least risky as far as causing more damage with these patients. And so we can do a general anesthetic and take care of these patients like you typically would for any other general. So lastly, we want to wrap up by talking about some different congenital anomalies that we can see. And especially in the the, in the neuro setting specifically, there's, there's obviously a lot of congenital uh, anomalies that there can be, but we want to specifically talk about the neuro ones. And one of the main ones is a Chiari malformation. And it's a group of disorders that are revolved around a displacement of the cerebellum. And so it's classified as 
Kiari 1 through 4, depending on which way the cerebellum is displaced. And there's different crowding of the cerebellum and the brainstem together. And just depending on that movement, it depends on what we classify it as. So patients with Kiari 1 can occur at any age, and it's associated with occipital headache, pain with moving the head, uh, coughing, vertigo, visual alterations. And 50 of these patients form a syringomyelia or a cyst within the spinal cord that can result in paralysis or a loss of feeling. Patients with Kiari 2 is associated with myelomeningia cell. And I'll talk about this a little bit more in a couple minutes. Uh, but basically, it's a form of spina bifida in which you have an incomplete or unfused closure of the spine, which allows the spinal cord to protrude out of the patient's back. And it's often associated with Kiari 2, as I talked about. And then often we also see obstructive hydrocephalus as well with Kiari 2. Treatment for these malformations involve a surgical decompression by enlarging the foramen magnum, which allows more room for the bottom of the brainstem and the, and the top of the spinal cord to be able to connect and for cerebral spinal fluid to flow freely. So anesthesia for these cases is typically a general anesthetic. And we want to ensure that the intracranial pressure, the ICP, does not increase. And for more information about different interventions that we do related to ICP, our previous episode, we talked all about intracranial pressure. So I'll, I'll refer you to our cranial complications episode to get more information on that. But just be mindful of the fact that since we're operating on the brainstem, any altered respirations at the end of the case may be a surgical complication. So for this reason, uh, it's really important you try to get the patient breathing back on their own uh, as soon as possible while they're closing uh, before titrating in more narcotics then so that we can rule out any anesthesia causes for an altered breathing pattern when they wake up. Next, you want to talk about tuberous sclerosis. And this is an autosomal dominant disease uh, in which benign neoplasms and angiofibromas can occur throughout the body. And depending on the location of these developed lesions, there can be a variety of associated conditions. You can see Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome from a, a cardiac rhabdomyoma. We can see cysts in the kidney that can cause renal failure. We can see lesions in the oral cavity or the larynx that will then affect the visualization of the airway and the ability to ventilate any of these anesthetized patients. And then the brain lesions include giant cell astrocytomas and then corticotubers. And so anesthesia complications for these patients really depend on the location of the lesion. So for example, if it's more in the oral cavity and the larynx, we want to be making sure we're doing that good pre-op airway inspection um, prior to taking the patient back to the operating room and determining if we need any extra equipment available, if they're going to be a difficult intubation, et cetera. Uh, maybe their kidney function needs to be assessed, cardiac workup, et cetera. Next on our list is von Hippel-Landau disease. And this is basically going to be a system of many different tumors that can happen in many different body systems. It's an autosomal dominant familial disease associated with benign retinal angiomas. You can also see hemangioblastomas and nervous system tumors as well. Most commonly, you can see this in the central nervous system, where you can see lesions there in the cerebellum brainstem, also in the spinal cord. You're going to want to be very careful when considering a spinal for this reason because of the potential for spinal cord hemangioblastomas. So that's a concern there. Epidural anesthesia has been successful, however. It's also important to recognize that this has been associated with pheochromocytomas, 
So be mindful if you have an exaggerated hypertension and because of surgical stimulation or because of DL, you keep this tucked away in the back of your mind that many times you can see this association with a FIO and we're not going to get into a huge talk here about how we're going to manage that. We have a different episode that talks about all the different anesthetic considerations of a FIO, but do keep that in mind that those can coincide. Next, let's talk about neurofibromatosis. This is an autosomal dominant alteration in which tumors will grow in the nervous system. And you have three types here, type one, type two, and you have schwannomatosis as well. So type one is associated with obstructive hydrocephalus. You can see epilepsy, cancer, and congenital heart defects as well. And this as well has an increased risk for a pheochromocytoma as well. These tumors will be removed if they are cancerous or if they are symptomatic from uh, causing compression on any you know, surrounding structures. Anesthesia considerations to think about here, preoperative consideration. Uh, again, you want to think about if they have a pheochromocytoma and you need to think about if they also have any airway considerations from laryngeal neurofibromas, this could impede your view or make it difficult to be able to place the ET tube. If these patients have tumors around the spinal canal, you're going to be want to be very careful and be very cautious when using spinal anesthetic. Um, so keep that in mind. If that would be a consideration that you would want to be using spinal anesthesia for these cases, just be very, very mindful and cautious and do the best you can to understand if these patients do have any tumors there around the spinal canal. So lastly, let's talk about some vertebral column congenital abnormalities or anomalies. So spina bifida occulta is a incomplete formation of a single lamina in the lumbosacral spine. And this is an isolation of any other abnormalities. We do not see any symptomatic characteristics of this. It's usually just found as an incidental finding on a radiographic examination. Uh, just know that with these patients, it, it is still fine to do a spinal anesthetic. Um, we typically don't see any alterations really much from our standpoint. Uh, but then if it if it's worse than that, if if there is a failure of that neural tube to close in the caudal spine area, and there's then developing a herniation of the spinal contents out of the posterior part, part of their back into like a sac formation, this is what I was kind of talking about earlier, which can be characterized as either a meningocell or a myelomeningocell. And so if that herniation contains cerebral spinal fluid, meninges, and nerves as well, then it is considered a myelomeningeous cell. If it just has the cerebral spinal fluid and meninges without the other neural contents, then it's classified as just a meningeous cell. Now, myelomeningeous cells are usually seen in the lumbar sacral region, but just know that it can occur up in the thoracic or cervical areas as well. And as I mentioned earlier, it's often seen with the Chiari type 2 malformation. So, I'd be mindful about the potential for hydrocephalus with these patients. These patients often develop latex sensitivity just because at a young age, they're exposed to it uh, very frequently. And so they often do develop that latex sensitivity uh, later in life. We want to avoid succinylcholine in these patients due to an increased risk for hyperkalemia. And lastly, there is an increase in resistance to non-depolarizing muscle relaxants in the weaker lower extremities. So we don't really titrate the muscle relaxant when we monitor train of four from the lower extremities. So just be mindful that you're not using the 
lower extremities to titrate your neuromuscular blocking agents. So I know that was a lot of information, but that wraps up our episode. We went through seizures, stroke, different spinal cord injuries that we can see. We talked about quad equinder syndrome and then also the uh, congenital anomalies. And again, there's a plethora of congenital anomalies that we could have talked through, but those are some of the main neuro ones that we wanted to discuss. 